All right. Revelation part two. Uh, last week we covered the idealist view of the book of Revelation. This is an accepted view within the body of Christ, which essentially teaches that the book is allegorical and must be read through spiritual eyes and not assigning actual events that are in the book to uh, the book. And then we also covered the preterist view, uh, both partial and full preterism, which say that the contents of Revelation were written to the seven churches of that day and that most of the contents describe what, what occurred in Jerusalem at 70 AD with its destruction. Now, you'll remember, according to the preterist view, Revelation had been written before 70 AD uh, because if it had been written afterward, it certainly couldn't have been written to the destruction of Jerusalem, and therefore it would have been to another generation, meaning ours. So that would make the preterist view impossible. So we're going to talk about the dating of the book next week. Um, the traditional dates are somewhere between 90 and 95 AD. Why that dating is there, I'll explain to you again next week. We also pointed out that the main differences between partial preterism and full preterism is partial preterists say the book of Revelation was written chapters 1 through 19 fulfilled. Hank Hennegraff, the Bible Answer Man, believes that. And that chapters 20, 21, and 22 have yet to be fulfilled. That's the partial preterist. The difference between them and a full preterist is the full preterist says the whole book of Revelation was written to the seven churches and applies to the destruction of Jerusalem all the way through to the very end. So let's move on and talk about what's known as the his historist, historicist, I always have a problem with that word, historicist position and, uh, but one thing I failed to mention last week, and this might help too, and that is uh, the idealist view, and then the uh, preterist view, and then the historist, however you spell it, view, and then the futurist view, the way to understand these is, the idealist view is the book of Revelation will never be fulfilled because it talks about allegory. It does, the idealist view does not believe in it literally happening. The preterist view is that it has been fulfilled and then the his, historist view is that it is being fulfilled. And then finally, the futurist view is that it will be fulfilled. Okay, so will be, is being, has been, and never will be are the three ways to understand those uh, four main views of the book of Revelation uh, from a uh, modern Christian evangelical stance. All right, also mentioned last week, I find the 
historicist view very compelling. And uh, because it reaches and teaches the book of Revelation as symbolic representation of the course of Christian history. And it begins with the apostolic age, the age of the apostles, and it works its way through to the end of the Christian age, or what historicists would believe is the end of the world. That's how the historicist view believe it. For example, when we get to the actual seven churches mentioned in the, uh, the book, chapters two and three, a historicist sees them as representing periods or times or ages in church history. So I'm gonna to go to the board again. And for instance, the first church mentioned of the seven churches is Ephesus. And Ephesus is supposed to represent the apostolic church, okay? This is the first church mentioned. Historicists say Ephesus is represented by the way Jesus talks about the apostolic church. And then we have Smyrna. That's the second church mentioned in chapter two and three. And that's the persecution of the church up through, most historicists will say, about AD 313. So th that's what Jesus, when he talks about, and the church at Smyrna, this is what I say, the historicist says, this is describing the Christian church during the persecution period up through 313. And then Pergamos represents uh, up to 500 AD. So we're talking about a lot of the early Catholicism. And so we're gonna read about the Church of Pergamos. And then Thyatira, in uh, historicist view, is the age of um, what they say, or the rise of the papal church, uh, meaning the Catholic church and popes. And then when we go to Sardis, that is describing um, the Reformation age, which began around the 1500s, Reformation, with Erasmus and Luther and those guys. And then after that, we have the Phil Church of Philadelphia. And you know from your Greek, Delphia, that that means the Church of Brotherly Love, that this is an age of evangelism, evangelism, and it represents that, that age of the uh, great outpouring of, from the Reformation of the church and revivals and everything else. And then finally, we get to the final seventh church that's mentioned here, Laodicea. And it represents the present day, day church. So the, and Laodicea is described in lazy and rich terms as being uh, lazy and, and rich and uh, lukewarm. So you can see that a, a historist view, Jesus is talking to the seven churches all the way back, 
But the his, history says when he talks about Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, he's really talking about the early church, the apostolic church, and then the persecuted church, and then the church at Pergamos up to 5 AD. And then we're talking about the age of the rise of the Catholic church through what he says about Thyatira. And then the Reformation time is the church at Sardis. And when you read this and you look at those times, it makes a lot of sense. It truly does. And then uh, Philadelphia, this is the age of the outpouring of the Spirit, new revivals, burned over district in New York. Mormonism was part of that. All the things that came about there. And then now, we're, and this is the thing with the historist view, with the, his, with the historists, they always believe they are in the age when this is present. And so we have the present day church where the word's not being taught, money is really important to it. So the, you might find yourself as we study and look at it that the historist view really plays to you. You'll start to understand it and go from there. So in chapters one through three, the seven periods of church history are mentioned. And then in verses four through seven of, I mean, excuse me, chapters four through seven, the historists would say Revelation is talking about the fall of the Roman Empire and that everything you read in chapters four through seven is the fall of the Roman Empire. In chapters eight, uh, eight through 10, it represents the invasion of the Roman Empire by the Vandals and the Huns and the uh, Saracens and the Turks, all historical stuff. And then uh, you're among the Protestant his historists of the Reformation. What happened was right about in here, when you read, when we read, many of the reformers we're going to learn were. Uh, uh, historicists when it came to interpretation of Revelation. They said, look at us, the papal church, look how powerful, look how ugly, look at its popes. This certainly is describing the beast and the, and all of that, and that's what the Antichrist is, these, these popes, okay? And, um, and then when we get to verse, chapters 11 through 13, it's the true church in struggle against the Roman church. And the bowl of judgments in Revelation 14 through 16 are the future overthrow of Catholicism, which the Protestants believe this is what Revelation is teaching us. And then, of course, chapters uh, 20, 21, and 22 is describe the end of everything. And that's how uh, the uh, historicist sees this. So criticisms of the approach include the obvious things. If you go back and you look at the scholars of the day, 1700s, 1400s, 1200s, and you look at the uh, historist opinion of the book, almost all of them take Revelation and assign it to their day. Meaning they were able to look at the history and say, the apostolic church fits this, this fits that, and look at today, we are in the church of Laodicea. And now we are in the last days. Almost every single proponent would use Revelation and apply it as a historist to what's happening right then and there. Well, you know, we're in 2016, and they have been doing that for hundreds and hundreds of years, using the historicist method, but believing that they were living in the time of Laodicea. So that's one of the problems with it. In other words, 
uh, they, they, they take and they apply it to their generation. There's a scholar named uh, John Walvord, or Valward, depending on where you're from, I guess. And he's a president of Dallas Theological Seminary, very scholarly guy, knows all the languages and everything. And he says that there's such severe lack of agreement on how to interpret the historicist method. He says, as many as 50 different interpretations of the book of Revelation therefore evolve depending on the time and circumstances of the expositor. And what, so what he's saying is, the problem with this view is people take it and they assign it to where they are today, in their day, and they give exposition of what it means. And it doesn't hold water because they've all proven to be incorrect. Um, there's a man named Moses Stewart. Yeah, he had the same complaint. And he said, quote, so far, actually says hitherto, scarcely any two original and independent expositors have agreed in respect to some points very important in their bearing upon the interpretation of the book, end quote. So we're faced with that problem, which is the problem that we've stated from the beginning. How do you know which one is right? How can you apply the, the, the understanding of the book to ourselves? Another problem with the historist view is that it excludes uh, Eastern uh, Christianity. Constantinople, the whole Eastern church, Greek Orthodoxy, they don't even look at it because most of the historicist view of the book of Revelation applies to the Western church. And so it's almost like it's a myopic view that, you know, I live in the West, most of the things happening are in the West, therefore Revelation was written to us in the West, and it doesn't include anything that was going on in the East. And so because of its myopathy, it's very limited in scope, knowing that Christianity is a worldwide religion. So you'll often find many people taking the contents of Revelation from the historicist view, historicist view, whichever it is, and they will say, well, look at America. It's happening here because we live in America. But what does it mean to the Australian? What does it mean to somebody else who lives in a different land? Are they able to do the same thing? And usually they aren't. So another, another criticism is that this view would have very little impact on the early church. Meaning if John wrote this and, he, and Jesus said it's to the seven literal churches and he names them, all of these churches, you'll learn these soon enough well, and, and then that letter was actually copied and given to them to read in the church. If from the his, historist view, they would be like, this doesn't make any sense to us. We, we don't understand this at all if it didn't have much application to them because these churches were all representing a period of time in Christian church. Now, prominent scholars, as I mentioned, who have held this view, uh, Wycliffe, John Knox, Tyndale, Martin Luther, though he questioned the book altogether, John Calvin, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Finney, Spurgeon, Daniel Henry, I mean Matthew Henry, all took the historist view to the book of Revelation. You can see that how important this view was to the Reformational age when they were fighting against the Catholics where they used the book of Revelation 
to show that God was warning them about Catholicism and the evils of a pope and him being antichrist and everything. It was literally used and applied in that way. And that's why it came into pro prominence. Revelation 13 talking about the papacy and the uh, papacy and the pope and the beast and the antichrist. So this was really popular in the reformational time and it continues to exist, but it has declined in popularity and in influence uh, because futurism has begun to take, uh, it, futurism pretty much has a, a hold on the Christian church today relative to its view of revelation. Now I know for some of you here and at home who are hearing this for the first time, it's shocking. You think, well, we've always just viewed it as what it is, and that's not true. The book and it, our view of it as a church has evolved and changed over time to fit what is happening uh, in the world. Um, in the last uh, 300 years, uh, futurism started to come in with the Schofield Bible and Darby, and Darby's the one who presented dispensationalism. We'll get into all of that later, but just as an overview, before I speak to the futurist view, I wanna make a personal observation about the book of Revelation and the way I see many people's response to its presence, okay? And in my opinion, just my opinion, it seems to attract or draw out of people a need or an opportunity to fill their fears, and their prejudices and to heighten them and to get them to uh, fearfully worry about things. Now, maybe that's God's intent, always open to what God is doing through it, but that seems to be what the book does when people take it and begin to read it. Um, I say this because thousands of interpretations of the book have been lived out by people over 1,700 years. And if this has ever been the case, I think that it is probably found more today in futurism when we look at the condition of our world and we see much of the degradation that comes by virtue of just the state that we're in, that futurism combined with the content of revelation really goes a long way to fuel that fire. Uh, it has been said that the futurist reads the book of Revelation with a newspaper in their hand. And what that means is, ah, uh, you see this? Oh, did you see what happened here? Oh, you see this? Ah, you see what's happening there. That's the quote. We read the book of Revelation with a newspaper in our hand. The futurist view, speaking of it now, takes the events from the Olivet Discourse Remember we talked about what the Olivet Discourse is, Jesus on the Mount of Olives talking to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and them asking him three questions and Jesus responding. The Olivet Discourse, uh, they take that in com combination with the book of Revelation, chapter four through 22, there's 22 chapters, they take chapter four through 22, and they say this stuff is all going to happen in the future, like I wrote on the board. It will. the book of Revelation up into three parts and uh, general sections based off verse 19 of the first chapter where John says, where the angel says to John, what you have seen, what is now, 
and what will take place later. So we know that the revelation is kind of uh, God telling him three things. What you have seen, uh, what is now, and what will take place later. And so futurists say, okay, let's look at the book. What happened, uh, what have you seen, John, in this book? And they go only to the first chapter. And then what is happening now in your life, John? Oh, chapters two and three and, 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 and two and three with the churches. And then what will be chapters four through 22? So a futurist breaks it up that way. Chapter one is what was. Chapter two and three, what is right now in John's life. And chapters four through 22, what is gonna happen in the future? It's a logical breakup of the book. It works. It, it systematically works pretty well. And so that is how they see it. To the futurist, chapter one describes the past, chapters two and three, the present, and then chapters four through 22 to reiterate the future. So those of you who are taking notes at home and those of you who are here, you can take your book of Revelation, you can say a futurist, chapter one, and you can just assign it, break it up that way. Futurists apply what's called a literal approach. Now, that sounds very uh, sound and reasonable. We're going to take the Bible and we're going to literally apply meaning to what is being said here in, in the presence of content and context. You know that the idealist view... So in the Christian faith, we have one end, the idealist saying, there's nothing literal in this book at all. And then on the other end of the spectrum, in the body, we have people saying it all needs to be taken literally, and that's the futurist view. So, admittedly, this approach can make great sense, especially with a newspaper in hand, because what you're able to do is read, and then you can see things like that uh, coming forth in our modern day. So let me just quickly say, as I said, chapters one describes what is now. Uh, I mean, what was, chapters two and three, what is now. But then chapters four through 19 are all referring, stay with me, to a period known as tribulation, okay? So we have what has been, chapter one, what is happening now, chapters two and three, and then chapters four through uh, 19, excuse me, yeah, four through 19, those are all tribulation pas uh, passages and chapters talking about the tribulation that the world is going from the futurist view to go through. Uh, that's all based on the book of Daniel, chapter nine, verse 27. Again, when we get through though, we will talk about all that. Some futurists believe that believers are going to escape everything that happens from chapters four to 19. Um, and because they will be raptured before all that tribulation period occurs. They are known as pre-tribbers or pre-tribulationists, meaning God is going to rescue his church before chapters four through 19 occur, pre-trib. Other believers think that God is not going to rapture his church before chapters four through 19 take place, that the church will go through chapters four through 19 and they're called post-tribulationers. Pre-trib, before the tribulation, before chapters four begins, post-trib, 
after chapter 19 ends. You got that? It's pretty simple. During the tribulation of chapters 4 through 19, God pours out judgments, and the question for you will be, upon who? Preterists say upon Israel, upon Jerusalem. Futurists say upon the world in the future. Historists say he's done this over the course of time through church history, and idealist says it's not literal, it's just figurative. Uh, chapter 13 describes the literal future world empire headed up by a political leader and a religious leader represented by two beasts. Now you'll notice I just used a word there in describing the futurist view. I said represented by two beasts. They're supposed to be literalists. But what they do is they take the meaning of the words as they were stated within context and what church history says, and they say, this is what a beast means. So they're taking the message literally, but they aren't taking the representations literally. They're taking beast does not mean beast. It means a political leader. So there is some interpretation going on there. To a futurist, chapter 19 refers to Jesus' second coming, the battle of Armageddon, followed by a thousand-year rule of Christ upon the earth that's described in chapter 20. And then chapters 21 through 22, all events are followed. Uh, the millennium, there'll be a creation of a new heaven and a new earth, the arrival of a heavenly city upon the earth. All those things, chapters 20, 21, and 22, future things that are gonna happen after this tribulation, when we get into the text, you'll understand this much better. This is just an overview. So uh, there we have the futurist kind of purview of the contents of the book. Just to give you an example, a preterist believes that the new heaven and new earth fell when Jesus returned with judgment upon Israel, that all things were now spiritual and God's kingdom reigns now spiritually, a new heaven, a new earth, the new Jerusalem being a spiritual place, not a literal place. And remember, literal is how the futurists see everything. So when they read chapters 20 and 21, they say it's a literal new heaven and a new earth with a literal new Jerusalem, not a, 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 a metaphorical one or not a spiritual one even. All right. Uh, there is a consensus, consistent appeal among promoters of the futurist position, again, which is popular today, in our day, for plain interpretation of the book of Revelation, for literal or plain understanding of the book. Again, it doesn't discount figurative language. It accepts figurative language, but they see that that figurative language is describing literal events, is the best way I can probably put it. Um, so prophecies that use symbolic language, a futurist will admit to. They'll say that's, that's symbolic language. Uh, but it has to be interpreted according to the laws of language. Let me give you a couple quotes. J.P. Lang, Calvinist theologian uh, of old, long since dead, he said, quote, the literalist, so-called, is not one who denies that figurative language, that symbols are used in prophecy, nor does he deny that great spiritual truths are set forth therein. His position is simply that the prophecies are to be normally interpreted according to the received laws of language as any other utterances are interpreted, 
that which is manifested figuratively must so be regarded, end quote. And Charles Ryrie, he's a premillennialist, dispensationalist professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, says, quote, symbols, figures of speech, and types are all interpreted plainly in this method. So when we say that, that gives some more stability to the view of the futurist view because we're not taking and making it allegorical, you know. Uh, I think the preterist view is more plain than the futurist. The futurist is being credited with plainly interpreting it, but I think a more, more plain is that it's happened, and this is just describing what occurred, but the plain is always associated with the futurist stance. He goes on and says, and they are in no way contrary to literal interpretation. After all, the very existence of any meaning for a figure of speech depends on the reality of the literal meaning of the terms involved. Figures often make the meaning plainer, but it is the literal, normal, or plain meaning that they should convey to the reader, end quote. I hope this isn't getting too lofty. When you read quotes, sometimes they're difficult, but... So while the futurists will acknowledge that the use of figures and symbols, which are all through the book of Revelation, they say that that figurative language must be interpreted according to the author's real meaning. All right. At the same time, uh, they maintain that because there is figurative language in the book of Revelation, no one has the right to justify an allegorical interpretation of the book. Nobody can say, well, John was using symbols and signs and allegory to explain something he saw. Therefore, we have to allegorize the text. The futurist says, no. He got it through allegory and he got it through symbols and signs, the revelation. We have to figure out what those mean in a literal sense, okay? So let me give you an example. A future millennial kingdom is talked about and supported uh, in the book of Revelation. How does a futurist say that's literal? How do they prove that when the millennial reign is spoken of in Revelation, it's a literal event from figurative, which could be figurative language? They rely super strongly on the opinions of the early church leaders and fathers, as we call them. So the future millennial kingdom, spoken of in Revelation, Clement of Rome believed in it. 60 years after Jesus died, Clement of Rome, he wrote of Revelation speaking of that time. Justin Martyr, 165 years after Christ, believed in a millennial reign, literal thousand year reign. Uh, Irenaeus did, Tertullian did, 225 AD, so did many others. So the futurist says, if we wanna understand what it's talking about with, with regard to millennial reign, we have to look at what the early church leaders wrote about. When we look to those guys I just mentioned, they find that there was early church leadership that said it's gonna be a literal thousand year reign, and they say, this is how we know our interpretation is correct. It's not a bad way to justify um, your position reading the book of Revelation. You have witnesses who are much closer to the time and date of the book who are writing and they were saying, we're gonna have a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. They believe that. Then they go on and say what happened was this guy named Origen, just to let you know, about 200 AD, a little bit later, he, he died in 254 AD. 
Origen is the one who came up with the idealist view. And at that time, Origen was saying, I don't think there's gonna be some literal thousand year reign. So all the way back in 225, Origen says, no way, we have to allegorically apply meaning to the contents of this book. Now from Origen, an allegorical interpretation of him, the guy who really made it popular was a guy named Augustine. Augustine came along later, 354 to 430. Now we're, now we're 400 years past Christ, and Augustine, after Origen's uh, initial foray into allegorical interpretation, Augustine said, yes, that's how, and he then vastly interpreted the book of Revelation with allegorical symbol, and so he put a gap between the futurist view and uh, what was popular. So the allegorical symbol sort of remained the Roman uh, Catholic view from Origen, and then Augustine, then 500 AD, and then all the way out to the Reformation, 1500s, we have the allegorical view very, very prominent among believers until the Protestants come along. And Calvin and Luther, not Erasmus, he was a Catholic, and Knox and Zwingli and Tyndale, they all said, no way is this thing uh, uh, interpreted allegorically. This is a history of what has happened in Christ's church. And so when we look at Ephesus and the apostolic, that's happened, and we look at this, and right now we're in the age of the papal church. We're in the church of Thyatira. We're in the church when everything's falling apart and the beast is rising up and the antichrist is here. And they assign that to the pope of that time. In response to that, the preterist view started coming up. It was a Catholic who started to say, wait a second, don't call my pope the, the antichrist. That's not fair. We have a different view. We think that this was all fulfilled back in the day, before the early church fathers were writing. This isn't a history, this isn't allegory. This was fulfilled. Read the text plainly, you can see that it was. Taking the stress and focus off the Pope. And then as I just said, that, that, that view uh, sort of was overtaken by the futurist view, which is no, 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 we're waiting for all of this to still occur. And so for hundreds of years, we've looked at it that way. Uh, it goes without saying that the uh, futurist view is widely held, very popular among Christians today. One of the most popular versions on the futurist teaching, dang it. is called Dispensational Theology, and it's promoted by schools such as Dallas Theological Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, uh, Charles Ryrie, John Valward, Dwight Pentecost, Chuck Smith, all ardent futurists, all using um, the view of the futurist to teach. Uh, some of the drawbacks to the futurist position when people apply the futurist approach to current events is uh, there is that embarrassment of trying to say Jesus is coming. And uh, when I say the embarrassment of it has been ubiquitous over the course of Christian history, where believers have, under various leaders' inspirations and insights, for a thousand plus years, 1,500 years, run to the hills because all the signs lined up for the futurist fulfillment of the book of Revelation. 
and we still do it today. I'm, I, I, I'm withholding comment. I'm just saying it has been going on forever where all the signs of the tribulation were being unfolded in people's eyes, and so the fervor continued. Uh, over a thousand years, uh, setting dates for Christ's return has been, and you know, probably a serious futurist wouldn't do that. Someone who really does understand the position of the, fu the futurist position of Revelation probably wouldn't go in and say, it's the ones who have the loudest voices and have the, the television uh, programs and have the uh, billboards, they get the most no. And you know, the, the media will often glom on to someone who's saying, Jesus is coming on December 26th at 5 p.m. in Texas, get ready. The media jumps on that. And now in our age of information, it's just so quick and everywhere that the hyper-futurists get a lot of attention and give a bad name to those who believe that this is playing out in the book and we should look at it. 80% um, of the content that is spoken of to these churches in the Revelation uh, do not have application to them if you take the futurist position. That's one of the criticisms of it. So while Jesus says to John, take this to the seven churches, 80% of the whole revelation doesn't have any application to them at all. So that would then lend to the historist view that, well, it wasn't to them. It was to a period of time that they represented. And then you go full circle. Well, then it means that, and on and on and on. Hank Hennegraaff makes a really important uh, criticism against the futurist view. And this is what he says, and I'll end with this on the futurist view. When a Bible writer uses a symbol or an allegory, we do violence to its intentions if we interpret it in a strictly literal manner. So what he says is, listen, if John was receiving allegorical messages to include in this book and cups and, and this seal and that and all this stuff, and we take a literal approach to it, Hanegraaff says we do violence to what the, uh, what the author originally meant. Of course, the futurist holds the opposite view, and we have then have division. So there are the four views of Revelation, the idealists, the preterists, including full and partial, the historists, and the futurists. And as we go through the content of the book, you're going to have to decide, where are you? I mean, you may not decide. You might say, I like a little bit of that, and I like a little bit of this. Of course, I said there was the mad dog or the crazies or the wacko view. Uh, sometimes that's there too. One of our uh, people who comes to campus, he says that he's the wacko view, and so we got to accept that. But we all have a different way. We're going to see it. And the spirit is leading. The question is, can we get along? That's always the question. I don't care what you believe about this book, and I hope you don't care what I believe about it. What matters is, can we get together and worship the Lord, be Christians, live our lives, and let the scripture play out according to what we think it's going to say? I think that is the most important point. So I want to add a fifth, uh, and this is the controversial one I'm going to add to the, I'm going to add a fifth view I think needs consideration today. And... Uh, Maybe it's time after a long time to consider another view. Um, and it's the, we ought to question the book's place in the Bible in the first place. Now, uh, 
Martin Luther, you know from the first time, he said that. Uh, he, he gave opinion about, no, I don't think so. And others have given that opinion too. I want to just give you this view and have you consider that as well. We are so conditioned in our day and age to, we almost worship the Bible. We almost worship the Bible equal to God, equal to Christ. We say, yeah, this, it's in here. Don't you mess with it. And yet we have to remember that it was still being put together back in the 1500s. Erasmus and, and Luther and Calvin, they were, they were still saying, no, no, no. Luther's Bible was that thick and our Bible is this thick. You know that? That, 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 that these Bibles have books in them and some of them are still considered apocryphal. And the Catholics believe, for instance, that they should have those books in it. So the Catholics Bible is this big, the Protestants Bible is this big. And are there books that should or could or maybe should have made it into there, uh, into the text? And are there books that maybe could have been omitted? Well, this Bible worship is fervent. And because of that view, it's, in our day and age, it's unlikely it's ever gonna get legs because the fervency of it keeps it alive and keeps guys like me from questioning outside the box. But I don't care, you know, my, the damage is done on me. So I'm gonna keep questioning outside the box and I question, seriously question, its place in the Bible. Does it have value to us? It does. And, and there are other insights we gain from the book of Revelation. To me, as many as the insights we get from uh, uh, Tobit, and from, the, and from Judith, and from other apocryphal books. So the reason I maintain this view to consider, I'm not saying I endorse it, I'm, I'm a preterist view, but right now I'm also saying maybe the fifth one is Eusebius, early church historian, had that view, okay? He was of the Catholic faith and he said, I don't think so. Luther, like you said, we read Luther's quote, he had that view, and then what may be seen in the book itself as failing in Christian consistency, okay? Now, I want you to ask yourself a question. When you read the book of Revelation, do you sense in your mind and heart the same Jesus you read about in the Gospels and in the Epistles? If you've read through the book, when you read about Jesus talking to the seven churches, do you sense the same Jesus? Do you sense a consistency between the gospel accounts, the epistle narratives, even the Old Testament accounts? And I'm not talking about the uh, apocryphal, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the apocalyptic Old Testament accounts like Ezekiel and Daniel. I'm talking about when you read the Bible and you read about the love of God, you read about the justice, you read about the sacrifice, you read about grace, you read about Jesus finishing it all. When you read the book of Revelation, is that confirmed to you? That's, I have that question. One of the things I love about the Word of God is its utter consistency uh, in the central message that we have, Old, Te Old Testament and New. There is a consistency between those books that defies mathematical probability. It's insane how wonderful that book is knit together. I don't find this to be present in that book. Now, when it comes to prophecy being fulfilled and interpreted to have been fulfilled, we can do that with, with Daniel and a few others. But when it comes to the spirit of consistency, 
I presently don't see one. That might change as we go through and study, verse by verse. Additionally, where I find consistency between the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, John the Beloved's the writer, Apostle, uh, Gospel of John, and Epistles of John, when I compare those, I fail to see a consistency in a book ascribed from his hand. I, I, I don't see it there. Both in a comparison of the Greek in which, they, which John wrote, and nor in the tenor or tone of the messages given. So in some ways, the book of Revelation fully addresses, fully meets, and fully describes uh, the completion of the Jewish age. That is, in my estimation when I read it, it's a Jewish book. And it's a book describing the fulfillment of very Hebrew thoughts and minds and, and everything else there, and it's being fulfilled. And this is why its message is so consistent with the book of Daniel and Ezekiel, but it is, is it consistent with a book of Jesus of Nazareth made flesh? That's what I want to know. Uh, is it consistent with the message Paul wrote in Galatians and Ephesians about salvation by grace? Yeah, uh, this is one reason why authorship is also in question. Uh, it appears in many ways to be the workmanship of a Jew, probably not a Jewish uh, convert to Christianity, uh, uh, especially uh, very different from the apostle John, who was a Jew who converted and followed Jesus and wrote the gospel, the epistles, and supposedly this book. We might begin our examination of this view before we wrap up the introduction to, when you read the book ask yourself would Jesus demand little children to die because their parents had sinned that's what revelation takes us back to um, would Jesus and or Paul change salvation by faith back to salvation by works because the book of revelation does that more than any other new testament book by far it becomes all about works Nothing about grace there. Would Jesus direct his disciples to rule with an iron rod uh, rather than with love and forgiveness as he taught him? Would Jesus vomit you or me out if we didn't, listen, take the words of that revelation alone? This was Luther's problem with it. He says the writer of that book demands that every single thing in his book is far more important than anything Paul wrote. Would Jesus vomit you out of his mouth because you're lukewarm in some area of the gospel rather than being with you always as he promised, rather than having long suffering for you as he promised? Would he suddenly turn to be this one who's like, I'm gonna vomit you out if you're not hot or cold for the gospel, right? Uh, would Jesus send us to hell for not taking every word of that revelation and legalistically apply it to ourselves, revoking the promise to be with us unconditionally? So again, Luther's complaints. Would Jesus tell us he's coming soon? Half dozen, I mean, a dozen times almost, probably 10 times. Coming soon in the Greek and not show up? I don't know. I mean, really think about this. We are thoroughly commanded and convinced to believe to love and trust in God's grace. That is the whole thing. But we are told here in a time of 
that in the time of great trial and persecution people are under. I mean, it's a time when they need God's grace more than anything coming down on them in descriptions from uh, verses chapter four through 19. It is heavy duty. And if you don't do it all, you are screwed. That's what it says. I wonder about that greatly. And I don't care what tradition says. I don't care what's printed in every Bible. I, I don't worship the Bible. I worship God in the spirit. And so when we start to see this stuff come up and up and up, and then we look at the fruit of the book, because I wanna ask you directly, what is the fruit of the book of Revelation? What has been the fruit that it gave us? It gave us David Koresh in Waco. It's given us 10,000 proclamations of who's right and who's wrong. It's told us to fear, 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 fear. It's warned everybody about his imminent coming return to destroy us if you don't do everything that's said in there. And it's the antithesis to his grace. It's the antithesis. Does it bug you? I don't care. I care about the truth. I worship him in spirit and truth, not a book that was put together. Now, this is the word of God, I love it. Could it be there was an error with the inclusion of this book? Has it brought peace to us? Has it ever brought peace to the body of Christ? Has the book ever unified us in long suffering, patience, the fruit of the spirit? Or has it unified special groups in division, anger, finger pointing, judgment, Woe to you, God hates fags. Where does it end? What has that book truly produced in terms of fruit? I wanna know. Now, if these views are true, one of them, then that last view I'm talking about is wrong. It's just one of the views. But I'm preaching it kind of strongly here because I'm getting ticked off as I'm studying this thing. I haven't studied it on purpose. I have not gone through verse by verse and broken it down the way I've done all the other books we've studied. I've avoided it for a reason. And when everyone's, come on, Sean, revelation, revelation, I'm like, we don't want to do this. I, I, I've read that through that book a number of times. We don't want to do this. So now I'm doing it. And now I'm getting mad because I have certainty and I have Christ Jesus on the rock, on the cross, finished work, died and ascended, I will never leave you. You are saved by grace. And we open up the annals of this, and I'm getting a message that is very, very different. When we compare Revelation to the epistles and the gospel, where's the consistency? I have to personally admit the joy, the peace, the rest I have from reading all other books of the scripture. I'm talking about even the law. When I read Leviticus, when I study the Old Testament, I don't find any unrest. I see consistency. I don't have it here. I trust the Spirit. I don't have it here. I see some historical application. Maybe God has it in that, in that book for that reason. Let me throw a wild one out to you. This is gonna take you, this is gonna freak you out in terms of possibility. What if, well, the story goes like this. There's a religious professor and for a full three semesters, two semesters, he teaches the New Testament. He preaches it, teaches it, grace, 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 Jesus, Jesus, blood of Christ, New Testament, New Testament, love your neighbor, serve, he teaches it. And they do the final exam. And it's at a testing center. And there's five roads that lead to the testing center. And so they hold it there and the time comes and all the students come and along those five roads, he puts people in need. 
a woman carrying a bunch of children screaming and crying with groceries, a crippled man needing this, everybody in need on those five rows, and all the students rush in to take the test and bypass those people who are in need. And they get into the testing center, and God says, uh, not God, but uh, the teacher says, you all fail. And they say, why do we fail? We are here to take the test. He said, you had the test. You had the test when you walked in here, and you all failed. We've studied God, Jesus, and grace for two semesters, and none of you, and all the people come in who role-played the parts, stopped to help these people. What do you think it's about? Your darn test, right? Could the book of Revelation, God have allowed it to be in the book, to be a test similar to that? Well, you've studied Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've studied Acts and the Romans and First and Second Corinthians. You've studied the epistles. You've studied everything about God's grace and his love. Now let me throw a test in at the end of it for you. Read the book of Revelation and let's see what happens to you then. Well, I'm going back to the law. Damn, I'm going back to, I'm going back to anger and fear. And you fail the test. Could it be? Could it be that the real antichrist is the book? that you're worshiping this thing and you have glommed onto that at the end that's got you so wrapped up in the end times and ah, that you stop your faith on the one who saved you? Could it be God is that smart and he allowed that thing to get in there so that everybody is failing the test when they get there? Because when I tell anybody that I wonder about the book of Revelation, I see their religion go right out the door and I see anger, ostrich, Sization, finger pointing, judgment, hatred, division, everything that is not from God. Think about it. Think about it. The book of Revelation wasn't generally accepted as canon, generally by the masses, by the people, by the powers that be until 508 AD. That would be 478 years from the death of Christ. Some ancient Christian branches will not include it in their Bibles. Uh, Luther's comments and the information on the Eastern Church and the fact that it was not fully embraced, we can see criticisms of Revelation. It's not new. It's not disrespectful to question it. The Bereans search the scripture. It's not against God to wonder and seek it out for yourself. It is probably hoped for that those who seek him in spirit and truth will take such action. Its acceptance by the Roman church does not, it does nothing to, exchange, to change the uncertainty about its lack of application to the Eastern church. And the fact that the Protestant Reformation used it errantly or disregarded it doesn't mean anything either. 65 years before Jerome, this is way, way back, uh, before he included it into the Latin Vulgate, Eusebius, the historian, rejected it. In modern times, computer analysis has been applied to the book on, uh, I think, four separate costly um, uh, occasions. And not one time did it show to be the handwriting of the writer of the epistles and the gospel of John. Not once. Um, 
apostolic authorships, very important to its inclusion in the uh, scripture that we read. Most of the book, uh, book opposes the gospel in terms of personality, tone, words, works, and teachings. At the beginning of Revelation, we are told that there are seven spirits that are at the throne of God. Throughout scripture, we learn of one spirit. If scripture ever talks about multiple pneuma, multiple spirits, they're always demonic. I'm not saying the book's demonic, not saying it's not inspired. I'm just showing you contextually what we have here. Seven spirits, we have somebody who comes to campus every week as a joke, he says, what about the seven spirits? I don't know about the seven spirits, dude. I know of one spirit, and I know when scripture talks of spirits, they're always demonic. So, you know, how do we, how do we interpret that? Jesus in the Revelation, John calls him the Alpha and the Omega. We never ever see that before. I could get that he's overcome everything, so now he is the Alpha and the Omega. John the Apostle in his gospel already taught that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And suddenly we have John who's fainting at the sight of him and Jesus announcing to John who already knew who he was that he's the Alpha and the Omega. Why is this revolutionary news? John knows he's from the beginning. Additionally, we might wonder why John the Apostle would faint. He witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. He witnessed Jesus' resurrection. He witnessed all of Jesus' miracles. And he comes to the living God and suddenly we have the man fainting? I don't know, I gotta question it. I have to question everything before I can arrive to the truth. Why would, be, why would he be frightened? of Jesus, people say, because he fully realized what Jesus really was. I don't think so. When I read the Gospels, I get a full account from John of who Jesus really was. There's no question there. But suddenly, the revelation has made John become more apparent of something he didn't know before. I guess it could happen. Why does Jesus tell John what he has already done in, chapters, uh, in chapter one, verses 18? He goes through and tells him something that John's already written about and known. John's predictions are addressed not only to the seven churches in Asia, but only to the seven churches in Asia and not to the whole church. That is a very important point. To the seven churches. That's them. That's a very important point as to why it's included in this book and we now apply it to everything we say and do relative to the Christian faith. Why are these verses universalized? and assumed to apply to the whole Christian church. And then if the predicted event of Jesus' bodily return did not happen to those seven churches in or near the time they were supposed to, this is a false book. Because I took this quote from a man who does not believe in preterism. And he says, this book clearly says he's coming back. Clearly, quickly. And this writer says, if he did not come back, it's a false book. So you gotta choose now. Now we're starting to get into where it's starting to get a little hot under the collar. Well, wait a minute now. You know, think about that. Then there's the idea of group judgment. Have you ever thought of this? We always talk about, listen, we are all gonna die individually. I talk about this all the time. You are individually going to subjectively stand before God and you're gonna be judged by him and him alone. What does Jesus say here? He says to these different seven churches, they are collective judgment. That they, and even if it's from the historicist view, they are collectively judged by, guilty by association, not as individuals. That does not sound like anything I've read in the scripture. 
Very different from Romans 14 that says, hey, you are responsible alone to God, you. That's very different message. Here in Revelation, guilty by association, Smyrna, faith, you must remain faithful to the death to deserve salvation is the message he's gonna give to the church at Smyrna. You must remain faithful to the death to deserve salvation. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, thus he shall die, yet he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die, and yet at Smyrna he comes along and he says, listen, you better be faithful to the end, faithful under all this persecution, or you will not be saved. I don't like that message. I don't care. I don't like it. Maybe I need to understand what it meant in terms of context. We'll do that together. But ask yourself, question to the church at Pergamos. Satan has that territory, and though they held fast and did not deny Jesus during the persecution, Jesus rebukes them for eating food sacrificed to idols. Oh, really? I'm not mocking it, but I wonder. He rebukes them because they ate food sacrificed to idols. Maybe there's something we don't understand. But worse yet, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that eating food sacrificed to idols is permitted among those who find no problem with it. We have a conflict here. We don't have con consistency. We have conflict spiritually and in, in the context. Which is it? Going to Thyatira. This church has love, patience, faith, service, and endurance. But Jesus says to Thyatira, you have all that, but that's not enough. Have you ever read that as a believer when Jesus says, but that's not enough, but I still have ought with you. I, I read that and I don't see him. Why don't I see him? I'm gonna give you a real simple example. I'm a father and I am such an ass. I am, I am sarcastic. I don't have feelings for birthdays or holidays or anything. I'm just like, whatever. Oh, I cut my arm, it's arterial bleeding. Oh, let's get you to the doctor. I wouldn't say that to my children. I have this and I have more you need to do. I mean, I'm a man and I wouldn't talk to him. These are talking to people who are under horrible conditions and he's saying, listen, you've done this and you've done that, but I have one more thing. You ate idol meat. Does that sound? Does that sound like God? I'm sorry, I'm preaching this. I didn't mean to preach it. I mean, I'm a preterist. I'm a preterist. I really am, <laughs> but something's happening. I don't know what, it's just, in, it's just so crazy. Sardis is judged for being dead because of its lack of works. Works, that's what it says. Paul spends his whole life talking against the works of the law, doing nothing for us before God. And here along comes this entitled book and he's saying, it's for your works that you're going to be justified. Makes me wanna be a Mormon again. And of course, this is a contradiction of the good news. The church at Philadelphia has done everything right. It's done everything right according to Jesus. They have endured patiently. They will, if they will just keep enduring, they will receive their reward. I believe in a God who is there for those who can't keep enduring. I believe in someone who reaches down to the lost when they're struggling the most. I believe in a God during persecutions. He's there and he understands. If that's not the God I have come to understand in reading the books of the Bible, old and new, then I'm deluded. I am worshiping a false God. I need to worship one who is 
more angry, still holding us to the law, still demanding performance, still wanting works, and still judging us for things like eating meat. If that's the case, the book of Revelation, spot on, buddy. Let's read it and preach it and let's all just follow it and just hate each other until Jesus comes to kill all the fags. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Reward is based on continuing rather than God's grace and through our faith, always throughout the book. Laodicea is a church that's not hot or cold and Jesus is gonna vomit them out of his mouth. We love that as Christians. Oh, they're Laodiceans, look at them. They don't bring their scriptures to church. They don't follow along, you know. They're not paying, they're not dressing right. Laodicea, they're, they're lazy, you gotta show up and prove. That's just throwing us right back into Judaism, you guys. Show up and prove. That is not what the gospel message is. Jesus says, I will draw all men unto me. That's what he says, I will draw all men. But here, it's quite the contrary in the Revelation. Those who endure through their works and avoiding evil things like eating meats will be the ones who have persevered and makes Jesus happy. I don't think so. I just don't. The result of Revelation's doctrines, none of us know what it means. We don't know. And yet our scholars and our verbose preachers and the people who peddle certainty will tell you dead on what it's supposed to mean and no one has ever known. God preaches a gospel of sim simplicity. He teaches a message of love. God so loved the world, he sent his son. This is not a simple message. And as Luther said, the apostles weren't receiving visions of an apocalyptic nature for the future. They were there for then and now. And they were there to share Jesus to all who would hear. It seems if anybody was going to receive a revelation for the churches that he planted, it would have been Paul that Paul would have received that revelation and he would have written it and said, this is what is gonna happen either in the future to the church because I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter and, and, and John and James, they were all to the Jews. And, and so if anybody was gonna write to the churches that were planted in those seven areas, which were mostly in Gentile areas, it seems to me like that would have been Paul. No, we have something from John who they say was banished to the Isle of Patmos. That word is never used, banished. John says, I was on the Isle of Patmos for the Lord's sake, for the gospel's sake. People say, yeah, it was because he, Dominician, he took him and stuck him over there. He, there's nothing that ever proves he was banished. We have, a, we have a myth. We have a legend. Spent my uh, adult life going after myths and legends. And when you weigh it out, I'm going after this book. These guys say, we want it, we want it, we want it. You're gonna get it. I'm gonna go after it. Everything I've got that I can and we'll see where it all plays out in the wash. So, some things to think about. Questions, comments? One, two, Wendy, it's up to you. Kind of ought to cause people to leave. My name is Ray. Hello, Ray. You're a prejudice. 
or you lean that way. I lean that way. How do, how do the seven churches uh, tie into the predecessor's view in terms of chronological events? Chronologically, I, I uh, will get to how they were established, who established them and when, but uh, in terms of what happens uh, after, through, verse, through chapters 4 through 19, all that stuff, I don't know chronologically who did what. All I can tell you is that these were actual literal churches, and if you're going to take an actual literal method, message, the message that John received from Christ was to them about their certain state at that time. And I mean, that's as far as I can go right now, Ray. We'll get deeper into it. It's really a hook to get you to come back. Big Mike. I'm Mike. I have some observations and a question. I'll, so I'll do the observations first. I was one of those guys that encouraged this, and only two weeks into it, I'm thinking maybe that wasn't such a good thing. <laughs> it's your I'm fault. A, I'm agreeing with you. Um, I also think your comment that you made about if a futuristic message would come from anybody you'd think would be Paul, and actually Paul did a view, uh, address future items like in Thessalonians and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm, I never really even thought about Revelation like you've been talking about today, but, you know, with the evidence and the things that you put forth, yeah, maybe we shouldn't go here. But uh, the other thing I wanted to know is, uh, because I'm lean to the preterist view with you, why if this view of, of Revelation not really belonging, why we can't be a preterist without Revelation? Uh, I think we can when we use Hebrews 8 and 10 to justify that there would be, a, and 1 Corinthians 15 to justify where the apostles wrote, then comes the end. And Peter said it and John said, it, then comes the end of all, Peter says the, the end of all things is at hand. So we don't need Revelation and the dating of it to justify that. It's just that if we have that book of Revelation in there, we have to prove that it was written before uh, uh, 70 AD in order for us to explain away its apocalyptic message to the rest of the world. That's, that's why it, but I would think that as a preterist, there's plenty of proof uh, within the Old Testament and New Testament that it was fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem. Once I, once I got, that, that's right, once you get here, look, even if the fifth view is totally wrong. I'm going to go to God and you guys go to God and let's see what happens. If I have one more part on, on an introduction and we'll see, oh, do we really want to do this? Because I'm not, you know, if we want to spend our time churning our wheels on what possibly could be when we could be learning about Ephesians, you know, but I also hate to pick and choose and discount the book without having gone through to say, Mary tells me, look, you might as well get all this on tape because people are going to go back and say, you discounted Revelation without even studying it. So I feel like we got to go through the verse by verse and really try to see before we make the decision. Well, I'll listen to what everybody says. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's okay. Diana Matthew. Hello, my name is Diana. <clears throat> First of all, I do not think you're deluded. 
Not about this anyway, but... <laughs> Good addition. And I really appreciate all the study that you've done. And I think it's brilliant that you're, you've got the different uh, views and that we can look at it from each one of those views. Um, I think that Revelation is really a book of wrath and misunderstanding and wars and it's it's scary i think it would make a great movie but uh i want to know i've heard you mention daniel and this probably opens up a whole nother deal but i've heard you say that daniel possibly should not be in the bible either can you say a little bit about that i don't know if i said that but i might have said there are parts of daniel that are written in a different language than hebrew and it is believed by some scholars that it was not a compilation from one compilation of one man and so i don't know but i, I will teach daniel as if it is absolutely fully through and through uh, uh accepted and will use everything that daniel said to play into revelation where daniel was told seal the book of that prophecy and revelation was said open that seal okay also do you have any um information or any statistics on whether or not preterism is growing are more people buying into it well the problem with it is we now have the internet that makes it look like it's growing and so there's a lot of very uh, fomenting preterists out there that have sites, Preterism Matters, Preterist Archives, Don, uh, I almost said Don King, Don Preston, Don King's a preterist. Uh, 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 but so there's a lot, it seems like it's growing, but it may just be at the same place it's always been. Great questions, Diana. Anything else? Nathan. No, no, this Nathan. Sean, so isn't there, I mean, on the, on the, along the lines of this, uh, you know, destroyer Jesus, right? Jesus is coming. Isn't there like people who say, or is it taught somewhere in the Bible or whatever that, you know, the first coming of Jesus, he, came, he comes in peace. Second coming in Jesus, the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You know they had their chance and now he's coming with the sword to judge everybody is that absolutely it's it's definitely biblical okay. all of it discourses luke covers it it's mentioned by almost every apostle that he's coming he's coming so that is certainly a biblical tenant okay yeah definitely good questions you guys anything else i will get back we will get to your question ray in more depth as we move on down the line if we decide just can i do this Listen, I'm, I want you guys to vote too. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 16, 17, 18. John, you got to vote too, Scott. 19. How many think we should spend our time in the book of Revelation versus going to one of the epistles? I will give my devotion, the same devotion. Spend our time in Revelation, show by hands. 1, 2, All right. Okay, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you've been outvoted, we will continue on. And uh, let the flaming swords come. <laughs> All right. Oh, just, oh. We spend so much time reaching people with the love and then. Let's pray, you guys. You guys are a funny group. 
Lord, we seek you. You know, the, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. We know that. I get fiery, and, and uh, I, I hope you understand, because we do care, all of us. We care about the truth. We care about knowing. We care about studying honestly and the things that are worthwhile. So we pray that you will make this study worthwhile, that you will open up our ears. You'll, you'll shut down my stupidity. You'll help me as the facilitator of the group, the teacher for this group, that you'll help me to articulate the things that you want us to know and that we will be able to come to an understanding individually of the book of Revelation. And we pray that it will be possibly one of the few times in Christian history, a book that enlightens us, inspires us, uplifts us, directs us, encourages us, and that we can find consistency with the other uh, books of the Bible. We aren't looking to be rebels. I'm not looking to re uh, reinvent the wheel. We want truth, that's what we want. If it's not here, Lord, let there be a dearth and let us not understand. And we'll let the Spirit teach us uh, individually of these things. Uh, not me, uh, definitely not me. Lord, we pray for Dean and uh, that he will humbly turn to you, Joe, uh, John and Jackson. Protect them in their travels, tailored to overcome addiction, Lord. So many people dealing with addiction. It is uh, a pandemic in this world. And it does seem to point to signs of the last days as people's lives are just being wasted by the things of this world. Uh, but we know that uh, it is only you who will be the solution. There can be temporary bandages, Lord, that get people through this life, but what about life eternal? So we pray that you will come into those who will hear you and you'll bless them. Those with addictions, you'll use those addictions to heal them and bring them to their knees. We pray for Jarvis and his fight with cancer, our sister Heidi and her battle with cancer. She, she went through chemotherapy, which has stopped working. And so she has now uh, gone to radiation. And we pray that that will shrink the tumors that fill her body. We pray for Steve that he will have the strength while he is away from home and have peace within. Marlene, that she will have eyes to be healed through your shed blood and know that the stripes that you took for her are from you. We pray, pray for Tony, stage four kidney failure and uh, has great faith uh, and love in the Lord. We pray for ourselves, Lord, our walk. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in turmoil, who are having crises of faith, uh, that your spirit will be with us in abundance as we go out to be Christians now on our own accord. We specifically pray that your spirit will convict the thousands that are coming out of downtown Salt Lake today and yesterday. You will convict them that they are part of a non-truth. We pray that you will bless uh, people who are seekers of truth with your light and your life, and they will know that they have belonged to something that does not accord with what you say in Scripture and that they are part of a man-made institution. We pray that you will break the shackles off those hands and feet like you did in Scripture of Peter. We pray that you will free these people, uh, old and young, and we pray that they will come to a knowledge that the state of Utah will catch on fire with you and, and, and ablaze for the rest of the world. We uh, love you, Lord. We need you in all things and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Pray for Bishop Earl. Oh, I, I talked to uh, his son. Operation tomorrow? Let's, I'll be the mouthpiece. Unless you want to do it?
Okay. Lord, Bishop Earl is going in for a kidney stone uh, to blow it up. He has been sick for a long time with these. He suffers from these, painful. But he also has had, has had a massive heart attack, a heart condition in the past. And we pray that that will not affect this operation, that the doctors will be savvy and uh, use all their education and wisdom and knowledge uh, to uh, bring him through this operation, that he'll have many, many decades left upon this earth to do your work and your will. Bless Carla, heal her uh, as she worries about Earl and Diana and the rest of his family and anybody else who's going under procedures that weren't mentioned, Lord, they're on our heart. And we pray for our brother now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, correction. Did you? Oh, uh, he said he heard it. To him you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love. 